Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Case Voderbloom on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Fiction and Reality of Jan Strauss, a 17th century Dutch globetrotter. I very much enjoyed reading this book because it touches on a topic that I studied for many years, and that is the travel accounts written by um, Europeans who... Um, made their way to Muscovy in the 16th and 17th century. Uh, Jan Strauss was one of these people, and I was somewhat familiar with the book that he uh, supposedly wrote in the latter half of the 17th century. Um, One of the terrific things about this book is that Case separates fact from fiction, as the title of the book suggests. Uh, He tells us what the um, archives and a kind of sensible skepticism tell us about Um, Jan Strauss, and um, compares that with what he finds in um, Strauss's famous book. And the um, comparison leads him to make some uh, very uh, interesting and definitive statements about the travel literature in general. Uh, Along the way, he also has a lot to say about the Dutch Republic and the explosion of capitalism that occurred in the 17th century, about the adventurous lives of Dutch uh, sailors and seamen, about Alexei Mikhailovich, the Russian ruler, about the um, printing industry in the Netherlands in the 17th century, and many, many, many other things. Um, As I said, I really enjoyed the interview, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Here it is. Hi, Case. Hi, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. You're in Florida, is that correct? Uh, I'm in Florida right now, yes. So so what's what's the weather like in Florida right now, just to make us jealous here? Uh, it's it's about seventy two or so. It's okay, that, that's en- wind, yeah. that's enough of that. I don't want to hear any more of that. <laughs> um, that's done. Um, we I should tell our listeners that we have Case Boderbloom on the on the show today, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book uh, about a fellow that I studied once named um, Jan Strauss, and the name of the book is uh, The Fiction and Reality of Jan Strauss, a 17th Century Dutch Globetrotter, and it's just come out. It has just come out. Is that correct? Yeah, just in late last year with Paul yeah, Gray right, McMillan. That's yeah. right. It's just come out, and I finished it. I should also say that it's on something that is a it's a topic that's near to dear to my dear and dear to my heart because I, I've studied these things. Um, I won't say extensively, but I, I put my mind to them a little bit, and so uh, this was particularly interesting um, to me as somebody that studies both travelers to Russia and Russia itself. And and uh, Mr. Uh, Strauss. Um, traveled uh, in, in addition to Russia, many other places, and we'll talk about that. But why, why don't we um, begin by asking you, Case, to tell us a little bit about yourself, that is, where you uh, come from and where you went to school and how you became interested in uh, early modern history and in Russian history and so on and so forth. 
All right. Um, well, I was born in uh, in the Netherlands in a city called Harlem, um, which may be familiar mm-hmm. to many of you because of New York City having a Harlem. <laughs> um, I was born there in, the, in in 1962. I went to uh, a high school there um, in in the same city, and then I studied for my first degrees at the University of Amsterdam. Those degrees at the time uh, they were called the candidates and the doctorandes, which were more or less the equivalent of BAs and MAs. They've changed that system of higher education in the Netherlands since, by the way. Uh, they don't have these BAs anymore. Mm-hmm. I graduated there in 1985. Uh, the studies there, by the way, I undertook were various, but I did a variety of, of, of courses on Soviet history, wrote a minor thesis on historiography about Stalin, uh, but also wrote about Dutch history, actually, for my major thesis. Um, and I, um, I finished with that in 1885. Then um, I started my PhD in, uh, in 1989 at McGill University in Montreal, worked there with someone called Valentin Boss, um, mm-hmm. and uh, studied primarily Soviet history, which was um, felicitous in a way as a choice, because this was at the time when the Soviet Union began to unravel, which made research uh, possible there in local archives and even uh, made it possible to talk with people about their experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so for my doctoral research, I went to Russia in 1991 um, and 1992, um, and uh, that became my dissertation, which was defended in 1994 in Montreal at uh, McGill University, mm-hmm. after which I um, worked for more than a decade, actually, this small uh, university in uh, in Ontario, Canada, in North Bay. It's called Nipissing University. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, um, I was one of the two Europeanists, really. I taught a variety of courses, but I also managed um, eventually to uh, do further research for a book which was somewhat related to the first book uh, on one of Stalin's lieutenants, um, which then came out in 2004, and the dissertation, by the way, was earlier published in 1999. It's called Life and Death Under Stalin. Mm-hmm. The biography is called The Life and Times of Andrei uh, Zhdanov. Um, so that is um, uh, what happened with me until, let's say, 2004, 2005. In 2005, I uh, transferred from uh, from uh, from Canada to uh, the University of South Florida here in Tampa. Actually, mm-hmm. you sold all of your winter clothes and bought uh, three pairs of shorts and two T-shirts. <laughs> That's about <laughs> it. Yes, <laughs> actually, I've kept some of the winter clothes because once in a while I travel up north, and uh, they came in very handy recently. Actually, going up to the northeast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. Actually, it's funny. There are lots of lots of parallels between your career and mine. I think we're almost exactly the same age. We must have been in. I was in Russia in ninety-one, ninety-two, mm-hmm. with yeah, one of cool. with one of your colleagues, Golfo, um, yeah. uh, and um, let's see, you know, uh, and I, you know, I, I didn't, I, I, when I went to graduate school, I made the decision to study, I was actually going to start, I, when, when I went to graduate school, I was going to study um, early modern Europe, and my first mm-hmm. advisor was Jan de Vries. Oh, really? Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes. So, that's right <laughs> yeah, before I switched to Russia, Jan de Vries. I suppose Jan de Vries is a little bit like John Smith. Oh yeah, yeah. No, the the funny thing was the very first one of the very first exams I did in Amsterdam was his economy, uh, uh, the economy of Europe in an age of crisis. And Uh I remember I was introduced to to university studies at that time in the Netherlands Netherlands as follows, which was, here is the date of the exam. There's the book. Good luck. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, Jan de Vries was my first advisor. Yeah, no, I think he was probably happy to see me go. Um, (laughs) 
I switched to Russia and I was going to study uh, the Soviet and then I decided to study early modern. And so it's kind of, it's very interesting how these things are sort of parallel in a way. Yeah. Um, so how, how did you, so, so you were, you were trained then really, can we say as a Soviet historian, how did you come to write uh, a book about uh, this um, 17th century Dutch globetrotter? Well, when I was training at, uh, at McGill University, obviously people do comprehensive exams for one's doctoral phase before one starts usually with the actual field research. And, um, what you had to do for the comprehensive exam uh, was one had to read everything about a certain period in a certain place. And obviously one had one's major field, which in my case was the Soviet Union. But I had to pick two minor fields. And one was Tudor England, but the other field was actually 16th, 17th century Russia or Muscovy, um, which I did with someone called Philip Longworth. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what happened was that Longworth at some point took us to the rare book uh, rare book section at McGill University, um, where he introduced us to this text, that is the text by Jan Strauss, but it's English uh, edition, mm-hmm. there were two English editions actually, I think they had even in the rare books uh, collection there of 1683 and 1684, and he showed this to me, I had never heard of the book, I'd never seen it before, and I was intrigued, and um, it also turned out that over the years, while I was doing my Soviet stuff, I tried to sometimes find out if anyone actually had ever written anything about it, and it really, nobody really had, except yeah. there were, you know, people referred to it usually in a dismissive style, for perhaps good reason. Uh, there were a few people that had taken it a little bit more uh, seriously, particularly the historians of Iran, I discovered, but mm-hmm. and some people who wrote about Russia, Dan Kaiser, had, had referred to it at some point. Uh, but otherwise, it was uh, was rejected as being a, uh, a total falsification, forgery, or a totally unreliable piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had always decided that if I ever had a chance, that I would return to that text, mm-hmm. which I then did after I finished with the Zdanov book. I um, at that time applied in Canada for some some money for field research in Russia because I wanted to see the. Uh, uh, the Russian State Archive of Old Acts in Moscow, mm-hmm. because I had realized that there was actual evidence of the existence of this man, and particularly of the existed or the, of his uh, um, his uh, travels in Russia, in the uh, in around 1670, mm-hmm. in Russian archives, and I wanted to see that uh, particular evidence for myself. I had some uh, some indication I could find that, and indeed. Uh, once I was in Russia, I encountered that. So I, I started out more or less in 2003. I, 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 start, I went back to, to this text, which I knew about for about 15 years at the time already. Um, the main reason for, for switching from, from Soviet uh, history to, to, to Muscovite or Russian history, perhaps, was that um, I, you know, I had written a couple of books uh, which I had intensely researched on Soviet history, but um, I didn't really have much new to offer, I think, in that field. Um, there are all kinds of terrific books mm-hmm. recently which have been published on Soviet history. I'm not quite sure if I could have done anything which would have been uh, remotely as interesting as some of mm-hmm. these words like Halfins and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I decided I wanted to do something else. And plus, this was a period I had been trained in to some degree. I was mm-hmm. very much interested in also because I had a very thorough training in Dutch history actually back back in Amsterdam. And um, and that's why I returned to to this particular text and um, in, in 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 let's say 2003 uh, first did some pre- preliminary reading realized as well that I could find things in Denmark as well as in mm-hmm. in the Netherlands and even in perhaps in England so I uh, I got funding and I traveled to Europe for uh, two consecutive summers to 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 mm-hmm. further explore it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that's an interesting story uh, one of the things we've talked on uh, the show about before is um, 
something that you alluded to, and, and I felt that I know in my own career after I had studied Muscovy for 15 or 20 years, I was wondering whether I had anything more to say about it. And, and I really had a strong desire to do something a little bit different. And that's often difficult to do in a historical career. It is difficult to do, although I, um, if I think of uh, there is one, the one who, uh, the historian who wrote the biography in two parts of about Hitler recently. His name escapes me, but uh, apparently Ian Kershaw. Uh, Ian Kershaw, yes. Yeah. He apparently was a medievalist originally. <laughs> was he really? Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, yeah. Well, you know, in the German, as, as I understand it, I don't know a lot about it, but in the in the German system, that they, they have you write on one topic in one period, and then for your second project. Yeah, uh, Schrift, yeah. Mm-hmm. you have to do something entirely different. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I often, I, I used to think of that as kind of a, a burden, but now I mm-hmm. think of it as a, sort of a, a benefit for them because, you know, you really do get, you, you hear the same arguments and people going over the same things, you know, repeatedly yeah. after 10 or 15 years at it, and nothing really changes. Um, and and, no. and you, know, you get it, it becomes kind of... Um, Stale. Well, stale. Yeah, that's. A, I was going to say boring. That's too strong. It becomes sort of stale. And I had a really strong desire to do something, just just something that I didn't know about. Because the funnest part of it for me was kind of going up the learning curve and learning about all these new things. So yeah, and then that's the same with me. I had to learn 17th century Russian yeah, handwriting, for right, example. Yeah, right. And I had done some Dutch paleography of the 17th century, but really, my it had, it had completely disappeared from yeah. my memory almost. I went I get went back to 17th century Dutch archival pieces. I had to pick that up again. So that it gave me an excuse to learn a few more things, right, which is always yeah. useful. Plus, that indeed, you know, the, the, you have to learn about the historiography, obviously, and what everybody else has done. Uh-huh. So it, it makes it exciting again. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure if, if eventually one uh, one just uh, has, doesn't have the energy for it anymore, but I, I certainly had the energy, uh, let's say, about six, seven years ago yeah. to do something very different, yeah. and that's why I ended up doing what I did. Yeah, I also kind of think in my case, I won't speak for you, but I'm, I'm a more or less uh, uh, convinced and professional dilettante. I just really like to learn about a lot of things and not very well. well. I won't agree with that because I've read many of your works and I really enjoy them. So, and I don't think there's there any sign of diligence in there. But anyway, so then, yeah. so then, um, why don't you tell us? Uh, you know, begin and tell us the story of uh, Jan Strauss. Tell us a little bit about him and his context. All right. Well, um, the uh, Jan Strauss. As far um one one has to distinguish Jan Strauss, the alleged author of uh, this book, as well as Jan Strauss' historical figure. So let's look at Jan Strauss' historical figure. Um, as far as we can establish from sources, which sometimes agree with the book, the fiction and rea- uh, sorry, the book um, Jan Strauss' Reisen, that is the original book, which was published in 1676. Jan Strauss, its author, was born uh, just before 1630 in an area of what is the province of Holland in the Dutch Republic, um, not too far really from Amsterdam or Haarlem for that matter. It's about 25 to 30 kilometers, I guess. Uh, I guess, which is about 20 miles, obviously. Um, and he was born there in a village which was uh, the hotbed bed of the Dutch economy at the time because it was a village which is very close to uh, an enormous territory of drained land. And in this area, uh, shipbuilding really took off in the 17th century. Uh, they also discovered there not just m- uh, new ways of draining land, but also of mechanizing, for example, sawmills um, mm-hmm. and the shipbuilding industry, which 
was outside of Amsterdam and therefore not controlled by the guilds actually really took off at this time. Uh, the population of those villages to the north of Amsterdam and Haarlem quite often have been traditionally involved already in fishing, but many now also uh, took service um, in sailing much further distances uh, in uh, what was then the burgeoning world economy of the Dutch Republic, actually, uh, which then from Australia to uh, you know Cape Horn, mm-hmm. etc., uh, that is Terra del Fuego, del Fuego uh, actually, um, uh, of course, uh, was involved in explorations, colonization, and in trade. And what happens to him was that in 16, he's born around 1630. He clearly does learn the trade of sailmaker. Um, he at some point is either bored with what he's doing, making sail in his village, um, or he quarrels with his father, who had been his teacher. In any event, he ends up in Amsterdam, and he takes service on a variety of ships, the first uh, one of which is is built for the Grand Duke of Genoa and ultimately is sent by way of Genoa to um, what is nowadays Indonesia and probably sent there to see if Genoa itself could perhaps establish an outpost in the East Indies because, of course, the East Indies trade, which is now around 1650, was all the rage at the time. It was clear that the Dutch were making a lot of money there. The Portuguese had done so before. Clearly, the British were interested at the time, too, or the English, I should say, perhaps. Uh, The Genoese may have been interested in that as well. It was a bit of an aborted effort in the sense that the two ships were actually, uh, if you like, arrested at the high seas by the Dutch East India Company's fleet which brought them back to Batavia, nowadays Jakarta, its, um, its, uh, its, its um, capital at the time of, the, of its East Indian Empire. The Dutch East India Company uh, released the crew, which was anyway largely Dutch, by the way. There were some Italians among them, but it was largely Dutch. And many of them took service then with the East India Company, which is what Strauss did. He stayed for a few years in the Far East, uh, traveling to all the areas in which the Dutch East India Company had uh, had interest, with which it was trading, which was Thailand, Taiwan, for example, Japan even, and some other areas, uh, after which uh, he completed the contract and returned to the Netherlands. He settled for a few years, making sail probably ashore again, then uh, possibly got restless. In any event, he traveled uh, to the Mediterranean to take service with the Venetian uh, fleet, or navy, one should say, which was fighting in a long war the Turks, the Ottoman Turks at the time, a war which particularly centered around the island of Crete, but by and large in the Aegean Sea near Greece. Uh, so he worked there for a while um, it, it, on the Venetian uh, fleet. Uh, again, he was a sailmaker officially, but he um, supposedly uh, undergoes all kind of uh, adventures there. And again, here we this is described uh, broadly in, in the book. We don't really know if there's much evidence of what he relates, whether that really happened to him. But for a while, for example, he's a galley slave <laughs> on an Ottoman galley. And um, then he, uh, you know, he's, he's, he actually escaped together with uh, with his oars mate somehow or other they they file through their chains and then they swim to the Venetian fleet his oars mate gets an arrow in the behind and so on so it is it is a wonderful sensational story but what truth there is to it is not quite clear there is certainly some indication to think that he with very many other Dutch sailors at the time served in the Venetian fleet that was quite common to not be forgotten by the way there were many Dutch so-called renegades also serving on the Ottoman fleet mm-hmm. um, but 
that. Um, uh, in any event, there is, there's probably some truth to it. Then he goes back to Amsterdam. We're now in the year 1657, 58. And then he cert- certainly uh, marries in Amsterdam, actually. He has a few children. His wife dies, which, of course, in those days, uh, women quite often died in childbirth, although this could also have been a result of the plague. Uh, it's not quite clear, but his wife dies after some years. He remarries, particularly because... Um, this was the habit as soon as someone became a, 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 a husband became a widower he quite often went um, uh, remarried because he needed someone to take care of his children mm-hmm. uh, it seemed um, he remarries actually at the moment he already has signed a contract that is John Stas with um, the uh, with a uh, representative of the Russian or Muscovite Tsar Alexei Mikhailovich um, the father of Peter the Great the Moscovite Tsar, who is hiring, hiring sailors in Amsterdam for a ship which is being built in Russia, a ship which will sail the Caspian Sea from the Russian harbor of Astrakhan to northern Persia, a ship which is very likely intended particularly to transport silk across the sea, mm-hmm. silk from Persia to Russia, and then uh, the idea is that this silk would be transported, would be exported from Russia to Western Europe where there was a high demand. Mm-hmm. So in 1668, he takes service in Amsterdam with the Tsar. Um, he travels with a group of companions to Russia, about 15 or so of them. They certainly can be found in, uh, in Russian archives as well. You can see more or less in the Russian archives the border crossing and the amount of sail and other equipment they actually bring with, each, uh, with them to uh, further uh, equip the ships once they get to Russia. Um, they reach Moscow in December 1668, at which point the first problem uh, already uh, is encountered, the problem that um, their sponsor, who is a Dutchman who has been very influential and instrumental in helping to modernize, if you like, Russia by setting up a postal system, by setting up, for example, also uh, textile mills, uh, glass blowing uh, uh, companies and whatever else he has done. This sponsor also has been instrumental in setting up this idea of a ship which will sail uh, the Caspian Sea and, and hiring people to build it and sail it. He dies. And um, at that point in time, it seems that the plan uh, of having this fleet uh, begins to run into more and more problems. Nevertheless, the whole uh, company does um, descend first upon a place on the upper reaches of the Oka River, uh, travels over the river in the spring of 1669, all the way from the Oka River through places such as Nizhny Novgorod, Kazan, um, uh, Simbirsk and so on to Astrakhan at the mouth of the Volga uh, with the ship which is hauled down the river it is sometimes uh, indeed uh, tugged down the river as well because it's of course it's a sea ship and it has been built actually in the middle of Russia it's not the easiest way to transport mm-hmm. it down but it does get, get down to Astrakhan eventually uh, and in Astrakhan it is then laid up for a while it seems or it is at least it's anchored without much going on that's not quite clear why but it is restless because what happens at the time is that um, the Cossacks in southern Russia are um, um, are becoming uh, restless with the fact that they have not been able to sustain themselves very well. They are used to uh, 
for uh, fight for the Tsar, for example. They used to plunder particularly too, and their normal route of plundering has been cut off because they cannot anymore enter the Black Sea because the rulers of the area around the Black Sea, the Ottoman uh, Empire and the Tatars, have built a fortress which they cannot really pass. So they are trying to find a livelihood by way of plundering and go to the Caspian Sea, in fact, where they start to plunder the uh, territories of first the Persian Shah. They come back to Russia. There are some negotiations with the Tsar. The Tsar tries to, his representatives try to keep them quiet, but unfortunately a major Cossack revolt breaks out. That is unfortunately for the Dutch in Astrakhan with their ship now, mm -hmm. because they end up in the middle of this particular revolt. <laughs> um, they manage to escape nar narrowly, actually, but ultimately what happens to Strauss is he's enslaved by Dagestani in the Caucasus, which is, by the way, something which happened to a Dutch aid worker about four years ago mm -hmm. as well. And uh, he is ultimately, uh, he, he works as a slave for a variety of masters and is, in the end, uh, bailed by the Dutch East India Company again, which has offices in Iran, the East India Company, in its capital of Isfahan, uh, as well as in Bandar Abbas on the Persian Gulf, actually. Through all kinds of trail, to trials and tribulations, uh, Strauss ultimately does return then to the Netherlands, five years almost after, to the day after he had taken off from Russia, but he has not made any money. Um, the book ends thereby, by the way, but Strauss's life continues at least to the 1690s. He returns several times in a variety of records. One time, indeed, he returns to Russia mm -hmm. around 1676, 1675, 1676, because he joins an ambassador. Ambassadors were, too, in those days, were not stationary. They were usually uh, itinerant, if you like. And this ambassador goes to uh, Mosk Moscow in 1675 in order to strike an alliance, a military alliance with the Russians against the Swedes. Mm -hmm. Strauss is one of the retinue, and Strauss goes for a particular reason, which already is announced in the book, which is almost uh, published just after he returns from this ambassy, embassy. He goes to Russia, to, uh, to Moscow, to ask the Tsar for his wages. Mm -hmm. which is a very Dutch thing, <laughs> uh, I would say, if you want to think of the stereotype of Dutch people, obviously. Uh, however, it, it does seem from records, other records, that some of the other uh, members of the crew had actually been able to get some of their money, indeed. So it wasn't entirely a frivolous idea. Certainly, Strauss also appears to be the representative of uh, at least four or five other, uh, of, uh, of other crewmates, actually. And um, the ambassador, indeed, is, um, is willing to be his mediator. The ambassador, the Dutch ambassador, actually says to the, his negotiators, the boyars with whom he, um, he is negotiating about his military alliance, he says at some point to the boyars, I have someone in my crew who worked as a sailor for the Tsar, and now he wants to have his money. Um, could you look into that? They promise they do. It's not quite clear whether they actually pay him back, but it seems that they probably do, given that, by analogy, almost anyone else on the cruise gets paid back if they actually ask for it and if they uh, make their way back to Moscow. By the way, of the crew, uh, in, in total, probably about half or so is already dead by 1676 when Strauss is in, uh, in Moscow again. Uh, half of them survives it, it seems. Mm -hmm. um, 
So that's 1676. Um, he, uh, he, he returns to Holland. At the time when he, when he comes back, he probably still talks with the publishers of his book, uh, as far as we can tell. In any event, the book comes out at the time when he comes back from, uh, from Russia. He gets paid for his work on the embassy, probably has money in his pocket as well. He even gets, of course, a, a, a pelt, a, um, uh, a piece of fur from the Tsar, which was also the habit. Everybody, everybody received a gift if they had been mm-hmm. on these embassies, so that is probably also something he can sell. So he's fairly well off, but perhaps not well, well, uh, well enough off for uh, a man of the people, really, of those days. So what he does is he shows up a little bit later in 1678 at the court of the Danish king in Copenhagen, mm-hmm. where he tells the Danish king that he can build a ship which really cannot sink in battle. <laughs> and he he tries to, he has a model of that ship, and he says to the Danish king, just give me funding and time, and I'll build you uh, uh, a ship on scale, a, Navy war, a naval warship. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't that much more in Danish sources about him, then, except that uh, what there is is, is, is speaks perhaps volumes, to use the cliche, uh, there's nothing about him anymore. In other words, I think the Danes find out at some point that he's a bit of a charlatan, or he's made this up. He disappears, in other words. Um, and we only hear a few more things about him. One point in time, he is mentioned for, for a page or so uh, regarding his particular expertise in shipbuilding by the Amsterdam mayor, Nicolaas Witsen, who wrote a big book about shipbuilding mm-hmm. through the ages, which the second version, Strauss appears, the second version which appeared in 1690 or 1691. And in, ultimately, then in 1694, Strauss returns one more time to, um, uh, to clear his name from an accusation of falsification because someone has argued, a French Jesuit, that he has made up all kinds of stories in his book uh, and in a review in a Dutch magazine these particular accusations have been rendered. He finds out about this. He comes back from his uh, retirement home, if you like, in northern Germany, in, in Holstein, in a place called Friedrichstadt, or Friedrichstadt. He comes back to Rotterdam and explains to the editor of the magazine that he made all these trips and that certainly he did actually um, uh, indicate the proper kind of location of a couple of places which the Jesuit mm-hmm. had questioned. That is in 1694. He is about 65 by that point in time, obviously. Uh, he is indeed uh, being uh, described as a gray beard. From that point onwards, he disappears. Mm-hmm. He probably is buried in this place in Holstein in, uh, in one of its churches. Um, I can talk a lot about that particular place because it's a bit of a curiosity as well, actually. Uh, I have not seen the grave if it's still there, but I've, I've seen an indication where it seems as if uh, there are graves in a church in which the, the, one of the graves was perhaps his and one of them was probably his spouse's at the time. But mm-hmm. in any event, whether that is in 1694 or not is not quite clear to me, even though uh, many historians all the time um, copy each other by saying, oh yes, he died in 1694. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what the original source for that was, because I've never found it anywhere. Mm-hmm. I think that at some point someone just made that up because mm-hmm. that is his last mention, therefore he must have died in, at the same mm-hmm. time. I'm not quite sure if that's true. So in any event, that is the story of Jan Strauss. Uh, he is, in, in, in many ways, though, I think emblematic for the um, success story, which is the Dutch Republic in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. This is this, this 
uh, hole in the wall, if you like, this absolute nowhere, uh, this, this, this very unpleasant place, and as Simon Sharma and others have written about it, it becomes the hotbed of the, <laughs> the European economy, of, 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 of culture. It is, of course, the age of Rembrandt. This person is born in, uh, uh, in, 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 in a very humble kind of family in a small little village, and ultimately, probably, it seems... Throughout his adventures and his daring do, he actually makes it. He is a kind of very early version of a capitalist success story, mm-hmm. in other words. And uh, don't, don't uh, you know, you can ask me what, what it all takes. I mean, obviously, all of this is a lot of luck in the end. But he's mm-hmm. lucky enough to survive it all. He's lucky enough to come up time and again with different things which will make him money and which enable him at the end of his life to actually retire fairly comfortably. He's disguised as a gentleman in 1694, mm-hmm. where certainly he wasn't born as a gentleman. No, he's, he seems to be well-dressed, etc. So that is the story of his life, more or less. Mm-hmm. How, how, how typical was this life uh, among the people that he was, among his cohort? Well, very untypical, I yeah, would I think. The, to give you one idea, he actually served twice East India Company on his first trip and on his third trip. Um, we know, statistically speaking, that in the 17th and 18th century, uh, of the Dutch East India Company, only one in three of its employees, which are soldiers, sailors, and anyone else from high to low, uh, only one in three actually returned from the Far East. <laughs> yeah. And that is not because they had such a good time. <laughs> Usually. Yeah, no, I imagine. He was a very hardy soul, young. Hardy soul and lucky in many ways, I yeah, think, as right. well. Uh-huh. Um, so, so and, and then, you know, another thing that, that sort of um, strikes my mind is the uh, international aspect of all this, because he, you know, uh, while he is uh, uh, a, a, a Dutchman himself, uh, he seems to be um, serving a lot of different masters in a lot of different places that we don't ordinarily uh, associate with Dutch people. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, uh, well, in, in many ways, again, it shows, um, it shows, of course, in, in the first place, perhaps something of the, the, the kind of uh, ephemeral quality of uh, national identity at yeah. the time. Um, he clearly, uh, to some extent, you can see that in, in a variety of records, he does rely sometimes on a Dutch network because it gives him certain benefits, certain advantages. If he is, for example, enslaved in the Caucasus, he, it seems logical, not just for him, but also for his comrades who are also enslaved and so on to turn to the Dutch East India Company and the Dutch East India Company itself feels obliged to these people even though they have not really they're not at that point their employees, mm-hmm. and in some ways do not have to do anything for them, but they do something because of the fact that these are fellow Dutchmen who are in need, who are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, for the Dutch population at large, though, um, which is those below the elite, which is the great majority of the population, sailors, of course, uh, first and foremost, in Stasis' case, um, there seems to, by the 17th century, dawn upon them a certain kind of new mindset, a mindset which tells them that um, if we put our shoulders to it, we can actually get ahead in life. Mm-hmm. And in order to do so, we need to be very flexible in terms of our loyalties. It doesn't really, you know, we shouldn't really be too fixated up, uh, on things such as, you know, serving masters, serving our betters in society. If you um, 
really, without too many scruples, want to make money, there is a way of doing that and there's a way of getting ahead in life. And there are enough people who seem to, to some extent, see opportunity in the 17th century. Again, this rather modern kind of idea, which modern immigrants have as well, or emigrants, if you like, uh, this idea that if you go somewhere else and you dare and you try, you might get somewhere. That kind of story also, that kind of mindset seems to, to see, seems to be the one which, which Strauss has at the time. He sees a way of getting away from these very humble circumstances, which is, uh, which was the want of his ancestors undoubtedly, and he uses that, that particular mentality. But in order to do so, you have to be willing to serve anyone. The good thing for the Dutch sailors, and this is how networks play a role, was that largely if they served under Venetian flag or under Genoese flag, as does mm-hmm. in both cases, or under Russian flag, as he does for the Tsar. Uh, there were always other Dutch men, usually men more than women, around who would give him support, and he would give them support. It was his mutual support group, usually, and that is how people found out about opportunities, about jobs, etc., and that is how they actually were able to uh, to to actually uh, jump upon opportunities if they presented themselves. Particularly in the case of taking service with the Tsar, the opportunity was unbelievably uh, lucrative for mm-hmm. the Dutch sailors at the time because the wages offer, offered were astronomical. Strauss was going to make close to what was 60 guilders a month, which ultimately amounted to about four times the average wage for a craftsman in the Netherlands mm-hmm. for four years guaranteed. In other words, these were, were spectacular wages, and it is clear that from the group which goes to Russia to work for the Tsar, this is a group of people who are in the same kind of network um, in, uh, in, the, in the Netherlands. They're people largely sailors, experienced sailors from Amsterdam, um, who know each other, and the other kind of distinctive quality is is that with two exceptions, one of whom is the interpreter, actually, and one of whom is the surgeon, the rest is really Holland-born. They're mm-hmm. all Dutch. They're not, as is quite often the case in the Netherlands, let's say, born in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, which a lot of sailors were in the 17th century, particularly those who served on the Dutch East India Company, or in Scandinavia, for example. These are people, because they're from Holland, they know that this is a fantastic opportunity. The East India Company's work, its wages are laughable in comparison uh, with what is being offered by the Russian mm-hmm. Tsar. And obviously, they, they tell each other uh, about this. They give each other the information about it. And obviously, the Dutch as such were certainly in the 17th century rather active in Muscovy. There was a variety of them for a while already since, uh, let's say, the, the time of troubles at the beginning of the 17th century, who had started to move to Russia for a variety of reasons to either serve in the Russian army as mercenaries, but also quite a few as craftsmen, for example, were active. So there was uh, certainly in those days in Amsterdam uh, a certain um, knowledge, it seems, among Dutch sailors that uh, there were opportunities to be had in Russia. And it is clear that from the Strauss group that this opportunity was only shared among Dutch-born sailors mm-hmm. rather than, let's say, these bumpkins from the Holy Roman Empire who could go off to East India and die there. Uh, mm-hmm. That was basically the, the, the kind of somewhat cynical idea. Here, but it seemed to work mm-hmm. in this case uh, uh, rather well. It should, of course, be remembered that one of the crew who goes with, with Strauss um, to Russia in 1668 is, uh, is someone by the name of Karsten Brandt. And Karsten Brandt, um, who escapes as well from Astrakhan and returns to Russia, 
settles near Moscow and later on becomes famous because he builds or repairs the ship or boat, you could argue, which Peter the Great finds in an old warehouse of his uncle, actually, by which he's intrigued. And Peter asks, asks his Dutch tutor, Franz Timmerman, what is that exactly? And is told this is a kind of ship uh, which can sail um, Peter asks and uh, tells his um, his uh, his um, his tutor whether or not uh, asks his tutor whether or not this can be repaired so he can see how it works. The tutor says sure, and the person who will repair that ship is actually the same Karsten Brandt. Karsten Brandt repairs the ship, sails it for the Tsar on a lake near Moscow. Uh, the Tsar immediately orders many more ships, mm-hmm. and Karsten Brandt is therefore in some ways the founding father of the Russian <laughs> Navy. People have argued, and he's a friend of Strauss as well, but also obviously a very uh, versatile character, who on the one hand is a sailor but also is, is very good a ship's carpenter he was for a while probably a shrine worker in the uh, suburb near Moscow um, in which the foreigners were uh, were residing at the time, um, so again uh, there, is, um, there is among this crew it's a versatile crowd as well, it's a crowd which is willing to um, excel in a variety of endeavors in order to make it, in other words it's not so um, it is rather different from the rest of Europe at the time which is still very much um, into this mindset of an estate society. You're born to a station, that's w- and, and that's a station in which you will die. You have to stick with what you have. You can't really be as- aspiring to become a member, uh, if you're a peasant, a member of the nobility, for example. Mm-hmm. The Dutch seem to have shed a lot of that kind of old-fashioned uh, type of mindset, which was, of course, common to all of Europe in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So um, how did Dutch sailors... Um think about what did they consider what was their opinion of service in Russia um, well as long as it paid it seemed there was not much uh, there was not much of uh, let's say scruples or there was not much complaints about um, the particular conditions under which they worked um, they had of course the advantage compared to uh, many others who went to Russia that their contracts were finite they mm-hmm. were only hired for four years so to some extent, they were not faced with the um, the problem which people like the Scottish General Patrick Gordon was confronted right. with, which was that once they took service of the Tsar, they were never allowed to leave Russia again unless under very special special circumstances. Mm-hmm. So to to a degree, there was uh, there wasn't really too much uh, which they were too worried about. Obviously, politically speaking, what they thought about Russia. The book says one thing, what Strauss himself thought, I'm not quite sure, because mm-hmm. the book by and large seems to reflect what the Western European idea of Russia mm-hmm. was, rather than what Strauss himself really thought about uh, about the political situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, 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 that remains on the basis of the sources which are available, absolutely guesswork. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that to some degree they, uh, they did not quite believe in, let's say, what was called a tyranny at the time mm-hmm. in the, the, the published uh, uh, works in Western Europe, but at the same time, I don't think it, it necessarily uh, bothered them too much because they, you know, they did not have too much of a uh, particularly well-defined political idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the reason I ask was is that you commonly find, as you know, in these books, um, uh, some passage that says that if you are admitted to the Tsar's service as a foreigner, you may never be uh, allowed to leave. This is a trope. Uh, you know, again, the degree to which it uh, 
it was true or not. I mean, there are some famous cases which historians have tend to um, grapple onto, and Gordon is the classic one of people who mm. were taken and basically enslaved there and not allowed to leave. In the vast majority of cases, it's not my impression that that was true. But nonetheless, there was this notion that you could read in books uh, that um, many of these books were actually published by the Elsevier Publishing uh, Company, by the way. Yeah. They're still around. Yeah. Um, and, and you could read this notion that if you actually entered the Tsar's service that uh, you might never, ever be allowed to leave. But Struis was allowed to leave. Uh, yeah, Strauss was allowed to leave uh, in principle because of the contract. Now, because he never served the, his contract to the end, we're yeah. not quite sure. I do know that um, there was someone else who he met Axel Estegaan for the first time, whose name is Lodewijk Fabricius, who was a Dutch mercenary, right. and um, his um, his um, his father gets killed or his stepfather gets killed by these Cossacks in that revolt. But Fabricius, at some point, first ends up in Iran, then goes back together, actually, with Karstenbaum to Russia, probably. And ultimately is is given his uh, release by the Tsar. It takes some effort, though, around 1676, and then he takes service, of course, with the Russian enemies, the Swedes, actually. Mm-hmm. But in any event, uh, he he did get get his uh, his release. Um, so I'm not quite sure what to make out of that. Yeah. Um, I think some people had a special status. You have these Moskovsky in Azimsi, for mm-hmm. example. I'm not quite sure what to make uh, make necessarily of them, whether or not they uh, necessarily were restricted of leaving the country. There were ways around it, in other words, in mm-hmm. some ways. And obviously, yes, there were certain kind of rules and laws, but, I mean, if there's one constant in Russian history is that there's, there are many laws and everybody violates them mm-hmm. or everybody ignores them. And I think that was the same in the 17th century mm-hmm. to some degree as well. Um, one of the things is as well, in 16, when the, the, the foreigner suburb is recreated near Moscow in the 1650s, it means that all foreigners uh, have to leave Moscow proper and go, of course, uh, to uh, to live in this kind of village outside of Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's clear immediately that um, in already in the early 1660s, at least seven what are described as houses in Moscow, which are owned by Dutch merchants mm-hmm. and in which they stay. Mm-hmm. So um, what that exactly says, I'm not quite sure. But in mm-hmm. other words, if you had a certain privileged position, then you could... Uh, and you could perhaps grease the wheels one way or other. You could actually get away with with a lot of things. Uh, mm-hmm. it, was, it was quite often very arbitrarily applied, I think, the law, um, and that is a very very common phenomenon, unfortunately, mm-hmm. in Russian history, perhaps. So, in in that sense, uh, again, I think this is part of the tropes um, uh, about Russia, uh, which existed at, in the day, as you have pointed out in your own work. Actually, I think a lot of the stuff should be somewhat taken with a grain of salt. In mm-hmm. the case of Patrick Gordon, for example, he was, of course, a very important general. Um, it could have had something to do with the fact that they a valued his expertise mm-hmm. and b that, um, frankly, they didn't want him to share too much with outsiders. Yeah, uh, I think that's right. Uh, the other thing is, I, I don't know if you've, you've know, come across that in your own work, but I think I've seen uh, anonymous letters in, um, in in the PRO in the British Archives in England, which are clearly um, letters from Gordon, it seems, to someone at Whitehall, which are, um, let's say, betraying certain Russian state secrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So he, you know, he was an agent, in other words, mm-hmm. and that's the other reason why they possibly didn't trust him. But mm-hmm. um, uh, obviously, uh, the conditions in Russia for a lot of people were not particularly pleasant once they got there. And mm-hmm. yes, there quite a few wanted to leave quite quickly. I mean, mm-hmm. that's true. Whereas I think a lot of the Dutch, for example, unless they were mercenaries, were actually quite pleased being there because they were valued for their, uh, let's say, 
the, 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 the scarce trades they practiced as craftsmen or as traders indeed and, uh, and they could actually work under, under very privileged conditions mm-hmm. actually for the Tsar. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the genesis of the book itself. That's the mm-hmm. part of uh, your uh, own book that I, I found uh, most uh, interesting because one of the things that uh, when I was doing work on this subject that I was frustrated by was the um, lack of any literature that explained exactly the um, economics and logistics of putting together a book like yeah. um, Strauss's. So maybe you could talk about how he came to write it and then the execution and um, sale of the book. Yeah, well, whereas I think one should be very careful in, in making too strong of a case about Dutch modernity in the 17th century, uh, the publishing industry is another part of the Dutch economy which, which strikes us perhaps as very modern. Um, it seems that half of the amount of printed books which were, were printed in Europe in the 17th century were printed in the Netherlands, in the mm-hmm. Dutch Republic. Mm-hmm. And largely, of course, in Amsterdam, although Leiden had some, some for, uh, important printers as well, for example, a few of the other places too at the time. Um, but this was really a business. It was a modern type of business, a commercial business, which um, really um, dealt very sophisticatedly with um, books and finding markets in with marketing books in a way we are quite familiar with. Uh, when the uh, when I began to find out about the genesis of the book, I very much had to uh, remind myself of the current practice of using ghostwriters, which <laughs> a lot of politicians, etc., and other mm-hmm. celebrities are doing. There was something uh, about it immediately which which struck me. In any event, um, what happens here is that the book is published in 1676. And it's published as part of a trilogy. There's two other books which are published around the same time, 1676-1677, which all have been copyrighted by the two publishers, who are both Amsterdam publishers, uh, Jacob van Meurs and jo- um, Johannes van Someren. And they uh, asked for this particular uh, copyright protection from uh, Dutch authorities because they feel they have uh, a group of books here which um, which will be uh, avidly read by the Dutch reading audience and perhaps also by a foreign reading audience, by the way, uh, although they can't ask for copyright from the Dutch authorities from that for mm-hmm. that. But in any event, they're quite um, quite interested in, in in protecting at least their 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 production for a while. They do so uh, partially because one of them certainly is in the habit. Of doing this already because he is a specialist, which already by that point in the Dutch publishing world had developed a specialist in books which uh, attempt, it seems, to describe all of the known world. Mm-hmm. And he has in the 1660s and until about 1672 a series of books in folio, in large format, in other words, have been published but lavishly illustrated with engravings uh, about Africa, for example, about Asia or parts of Asia, about uh, the Americas as well. But there are certain blank spots which need to be filled in. So the publishers uh, decide that um, there are a variety of stories uh, or places they, they are interested in. At the same time, they, one way or other, get introduced to uh, the fact that there's a sailor walking around in Amsterdam who is, uh, he is, this is after he has returned, before he goes back to Moscow, actually it's around 1674, 1675 it seems, a sailor who has experienced a tremendous amount of adventures, a tremendous amount of harrowing kind of um, uh, events, and, uh, and can tell a very good story about it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they decide, um, also finding out where the sailor all has been, that this is perhaps worthwhile, that they can work with this, and that perhaps the stories of the sailor could be published as a book. Um, one of their other authors, by the way, is just a ship's surgeon who has been in India. The Dutch, uh, at that point, were trying to uh, dislodge the Portuguese from southern India and Sri Lanka. And that is a fairly straightforward type of production. That particular surgeon returns to the Netherlands in the 1660s, um, probably kept a diary, wrote it down, and in the end, submitted the manuscript to the publishers, um, which became part of this trilogy. It was mm-hmm. published in 1677. That was a straightforward one. There was another story about a shipwreck in the Gulf of Bengal. And again, uh, particularly the story was, was exciting, but it was also, it would introduce the Dutch reader further to Bengal and the area which is now Bangladesh and Kolkata in, in India, for example. Uh, Strauss's story, though, became a bit more complicated because um, the publishers found out rather quickly, I'm sure, that, in fact, although the sailor had many a good uh, yarn to tell everybody, (laughs) he couldn't really write anything. (laughs) Why do I know that? Well, I know that because I found two uh, marriage licenses of of Jan Strauss in the archives in Amsterdam, and it was clear that he could not sign his name. Mm -hmm. He could only draw the first initial of his first name. Mm -hmm. So... um, he married in 1657, and in 1688 he remarried after the death of his first wife. Obviously, if he could not write in 1668, when he was 40 years old almost, it is very unlikely that by 1674, 1675, he suddenly could write so well that he could write a book of 400 pages, because these were 400 pages. Now, in the book, it's, in the preface to the book, this is very slickly um, uh, glossed over. It says that a more civilized pen than my own rearranged my notes, uh, mm-hmm. something like that. It yeah. doesn't admit to the fact that he probably just told his story to a writer, a scribe, if you like, who actually wrote it down. Because of a variety of reasons, I think that the person who was the ghostwriter here was someone who had written for one of these publishers these big tomes, these uh, folio version books about Asia and Africa, for example. Uh This was a person who was... um, he was an extremely prolific collector of all kinds of details about uh, exotic cultures, um, had written extensively about it, but through political circumstances could not publish under his own name uh, in Dutch uh, in the Netherlands for several years. It was a, a harrowing political time in the Republic at the time. He had no, uh, this particular writer did not have any, uh, any particular job he could under his own name do, and he was probably asked by the publisher to write these stories down of the sailor, but also to flesh them out with vignettes, with um, a variety of what are called sometimes choreographies, a variety of geographical uh, details, a variety of details about the flora and fauna, the plants and the animals in certain territories um, outside of Europe, uh, which Strauss visited, to write a little bit about the political circumstances as well. A variety of things, therefore, he uh, collected, he collected data for, if you like, and every time in the book when Strauss arrives at a place such as Madagascar, then a lot of different things are being brought to bear about the unique uh, geography of Madagascar, the strange habits and customs of the people who live on Madagascar, the Malagasy, and so on and so forth, for the, the, the curious animals, etc., etc., which are then being listed. That's is purported to be authentic, it is very clear that the ghostwriter used a variety of sources. 
Mm-hmm. The ghostwriter was certainly multilingual because he used also a variety of sources in a variety of languages for his own work, so that the sources, for example, are sometimes in French, sometimes it seems in Latin, sometimes in German. Uh, we're not, I'm not quite sure how much uh, he actually borrowed from English, by the way, sometimes even in Dutch, for that matter. He collected, he, uh, he collated all these different pieces of information, and the narrative thread became Strauss's own adventures, Strauss's own his travels, so every time he hits uh, another place, which the Dutch reader doesn't know much about, because little has been uh, published in Dutch mm-hmm. about this in ever, or perhaps in recent decades, at least a place such as Thailand or Taiwan, then suddenly the story stops for a while, and we get <laughs> to hear about uh, Taiwan and its uh, unique uh, way of uh, tattooing people, actually, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is correct. And apparently Strauss, according to some Asian historians, Strauss is the only European who uh, supposedly points out that on Taiwan, people are in the habit of tattoo, the men are in the habit of tattooing themselves, mm-hmm. which is the, the native Taiwanese population, not the Chinese immigrant population, if you mm-hmm. like, still existed at the time. Mm-hmm. Which again, uh, sometimes you, you, it seems that we find some genuine evidence um, from the sailor, or one could perhaps sometimes think of from sailors. Because what Strauss could have done in telling his tales, of course, is he could have easily borrowed some stories from other sailors as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. So in any event, that, that, is, uh, that is how the story is written down then. Um, the book then is, is published in 1676, um, late 1676, early 1677. Uh, it seems it is, at the end, a little bit of a rush job. Strauss probably has, um, has agreed with the publishers that before it's published, someone will read it to him still before he officially agrees to put his name to the book and become mm-hmm. the official author. So the publication of the book has to wait for a while because Strauss is on this embassy in Moscow asking for his wages for his former services with the Tsar. That embassy is rather uh, taking longer than was expected, perhaps. It takes about 18 months or so before he comes back, it seems. Mm-hmm. If I'm correct, it's a bit less than that, 18 months. Um, yeah, it's more like 15 months or so. But he only comes back in October 1676. The book is not quite ready. It seems from a few entries in the book that a few things are being added. For example, uh, the death of Alexei Mikhailovich, the Tsar of Russia, who dies during Strauss's embassies, for example, entered as well. And the death of a Danish admiral seems to be entered too, actually, at the very last moment. What also makes it seem that the book is is not not entirely, let's say, ready and has not really been proofread very well is the fact that a lot of dates uh, are um, are are entered very. Um, in a very haphazard and sloppy manner and don't make any sense. There are certain parts of the book which for 30 pages will remain in the same month of a certain year, where mm-hmm. it's clear from the narrative that things develop and we're now in a different part of the year, actually, for example, as well. In addition, the book is printed in Gothic script in Dutch uh, largely, but in the margin, the marginalia actually are in Roman script, mm-hmm. uh, which also seems as if this was added rather at the last moment to some degree. Why is there a hasty job done at this point in time? Because there is a competitor in Amsterdam who is intending to also publish a book on uh, Muscovy at this point in time, written by one of the uh, uh, more important members of the embassy, actually. And that book, uh, Stais will have heard 
on the embassy uh, himself that someone was preparing a book about uh, the, um, let's say, the, 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 the things the embassy encountered, but organic, a book about Russia as such as well. So the uh, two publishers with whom, uh, for whom Strauss has told his tales, actually, the two publishers get worried that their competitor might actually be quicker than they will be in bringing out the book, mm-hmm. and therefore uh, they'll have to beat the competition. They beat the competition by being rather hasty with certain things, and the book is then published um, in late 1676 or early 1677. That so hastily published, it seems that in one version, at least uh, the version I, I looked at, The Hague, in fact, um, the first engraving of the book says 1677, whereas on the first title page it says 1676, mm-hmm. which shows that again it, it must have been around, let's say, January 1st, 1677 mm-hmm. that came out, and uh, the 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 competitor only came out months later with his book. Um, ultimately, the um, Sky's book sold well. Um, it sold well. In 1678, it goes through a, an official German translation, which is copyrighted as well. Uh, it's clear that the English, um, the English um, um, uh, translation of it is also actually um, um, sold by uh, the widow of one of the publishers to an English publisher in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there is also a uh, publication of a French version in Amsterdam very early on as well. So it is translated into three languages, and um, it uh, it remains um, it, it remains a book which sells rather well until the late 18th century. The interest remains large. The interest, particularly in, in the French versions and the Dutch versions, uh, somewhat less in the in the German and English versions. It seems the English um, reading audience seems to become more and more sophisticated, and uh, is looks more for uh, let's say more exciting fictional travel tales such as Gulliver's Travels perhaps mm-hmm. um, or Robinson Crusoe which is of course only half fictional more uh, realistic stories perhaps sometimes as well or stories which at least have a better plot and have a, <laughs> have a faster moving narrative uh, in the case of the Germans it's not quite clear why there is uh, eventually no interest anymore in Germany very much for this, partially because the Germans ultimately themselves are, except for the Hamburg, uh, Bremen, Lübeck area, are not so much in, in, uh, interested in overseas trade. French, of course, becomes the, the European language of the elite, so all these French editions make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Finally, of course, um, what has happened is that uh, the book from the late 18th century really is, uh, is, is, is neglected and forgotten almost everywhere except in one country, which is Russia. Mm-hmm. And in the Russian case, um, there, uh, there's evidence that Peter the Great ordered two translations of part of the book uh, to be made, mm-hmm. both in manuscript, um, because he was interested in what had happened, actually, with that ship which his father had, had ordered to be built and, and what had occurred to uh, mm-hmm. with the crew. Uh, he, of course, knew Karsten Brandt, who had been on that crew, in fact, as well. Uh, so Peter asks for a couple of translations. The first one he doesn't like. The second one is out of the French, we know, not out of the Dutch, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. It's not quite clear. This comes towards the end of his life how much he ever even looked at it. Uh, it's also mm-hmm. not happened to these manuscripts as far as we know but there certainly was an avid collector of uh, of the book in uh, Russia because in the the National Library in St. Petersburg there are 23 different versions of the book today mm-hmm. so in that sense the Russians <laughs> remained interested and then in the 19th century Russian historians began to use it as a historical source asking questions whether this did tell them anything about their own past because there were so precious few so-called ego documents about Russia, actually, or whether this was uh, a useless um, piece which just repeated all the clichés about Russia mm-hmm. uh, existed in Western Europe since the early 16th century. Mm-hmm. Um, 
ultimately, um, Solovyov, uh, the great 19th century historian, believes it to be somewhat uh, useful. Uh, Kluchewski, his most famous pupil and the most famous pre-revolutionary Russian historian, probably, didn't think it was very useful at all, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Nevertheless, the book is translated in uh, in a magazine in uh, around 1880, um, only the Russian parts, actually. Mm-hmm. In 1936, though, in Stalin's Soviet Union, mm. full translation is made at a very curious moment in that, of course, this is Stalin's Soviet Union. Why would they be interested? But David Brandenburger and others have pointed out there is suddenly this new flirtation with the Russian past, which occurs in 1934 and onwards. So that may explain why it is published in uh, in, in in Russian in its entirety mm-hmm. in 1906. Of course, it's given a good Marxist-Leninist introduction, so yeah. this is all about capitalists. Uh, <laughs> in recent years, then, um, actually, the book has been republished possibly three times now in Russia in the last ten years, which shows you this kind of new interest the Russians have in everything but Soviet sometimes, yeah. although Soviet time now also makes its reappearance, it seems. But in any event, it, um, it has been published uh, time and again, annotated in, in pretty good publications, um, in pretty good editions, I should say. The only problem is for the Russian uh, publications, none of them actually has the engravings, and the engravings are a story uh, in themselves as well, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that, that diminishes it a little bit. But in any event, that's the only place where really the interest has remained very high, although I have to say professional historians in the footsteps of Solovyov and Kluchewski, not just historians of Russia, but also historians of Thailand, historians of, uh, of Iran, um, have actually used this book uh, at times um, in order to... Um, to, 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 to discuss certain matters regarding <laughs> those places. Mm-hmm. But that basically is, is, is what happened with the books. Um, the book was, if you want, by the way, at the time when it came out, and in the time it came out with its uh, first uh, translations, let's say between 1676 and 1685, for its time, undoubtedly a bestseller. Mm-hmm. But there is one qualification there. A bestseller probably meant no more than a thousand copies per edition. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, there may have been three or four editions in the Netherlands it, between about 1676 and 1685. There's only three or four thousand books. In other words, that's not particularly phenomenal from our own perspective. It resembles, uh, uh, although at the same time I always think uh, it resembles uh, a very good selling academic book. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> but that's about, that's about the scale of it, in other words. Mm-hmm. I have just one question about this. It's, it's something that I've wondered about for a long time, having um, studied uh, these uh, sorts of books. Um, um, mm-hmm. that, and that is that we can look at them today and we can say this part of the book was definitely borrowed from Herberstein yeah. or Olearius or whomever, and this part of the book was not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to credit the part of the book that was not borrowed to, um, let's say, Jan Strauss's own experience, mm-hmm. and therefore it kind of rises in our uh, empirical esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, we care very much about this. D- did readers at the time care at all about this? Did they actually believe that um, Jan Strauss wrote this book, or did, did they even care? <laughs> well, uh, there is a... In the Netherlands, there there was uh, a voracious appetite for stories by ship's captains in print uh, because it was part of Dutch national identity, if you like, if you want to call it that. The Mm -hmm. Dutch were very proud of their maritime history, very proud of some of their heroics versus Spaniards against uh, the English uh, traveling very far, uh, spending the winter in Nova Zembla, uh, Nova Zemlia, as you'd say, north of Russia, for example. They were very proud of that. So there was that type of of appetite, actually, um, 
as well. So to some degree, um, there was that interest. That interest is, 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 is partially also what, of course, the, the publishers cater to. Um, did they know how much of this was, was fictional or plagiarized? Um, um, did they realize that parts of it were plagiarized? There are different opinions about it. Anthony Manchuk, the Polish historian, at some point points out he has written something about travelers uh, and, and, and travel accounts in Europe that, for example, there is a um, French woman at the French court around 1690 who writes a two-part entirely fictionalized account. Her name is Madame de Aulnois, I think. A fictionalized account of her travels in Spain. This book is published, and it is unbelievably popular, and nobody cares about the fact that she's never been to Spain, apparently. Um, in other words, I think people were more interested in whether or not this was an exciting yarn rather than interested in this being uh, indeed truthful. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that did not play too much of a role. Um, again, the reader, by and large, was, was interested in reading about exotic areas and different cultures and reading an adventure story at the same time, as mm -hmm. we are interested in reading some of these things today still. I mean, the readers were, in other words, uh, similar to what what we are if we read the National Geographic or we watch the National Geographic, perhaps on TV these days, interested in those kind of things, interested in adventure stories as well. But I don't think they particularly asked the question uh, most of the time whether or not this has happened to a sailor. It seemed probably at the same time, of course, it seemed realistic enough, given that they were used to these kind of uh, travelers' accounts by Dutch sailors, emblematic accounts, starting with Jan Huyven van Linschoot's itinerary of the late 16th century, which uh, always um, charted, always chronicled these heroics of Dutch sailors. Mm -hmm. So obviously someone could have done this, and if someone could have done this, therefore someone uh, did do this, and, and yeah. why question it, why, why doubt it, in fact. Mm -hmm. He, as Thijs himself, obviously felt partially that at least whatever there was in the book was clearly the truth. Otherwise mm -hmm. he would not have gone back to, at the end of his life to this journal editor complaining that yeah, he right. was falsely accused of making things up. Exactly. Yeah. No, no. I think that, I think it's a very interesting question and I and I, I I don't I mean we as academics really try to separate um fact from fiction. I mean we kind of mm -hmm. do it professionally. Um but my impression is, you know, having taught for years and years and also sort of, you know, having lived among normal people that is non-academics that yeah. they, they don't they don't care so much really. They're, they they, no. they don't put mm -hmm. much weight on it at all. So I you know, I think that's why I was always very hesitant when I was writing about this stuff to use the word plagiarism because plagiarism Mm -hmm. Kind of a legal concept, and you know, I, I suppose that er some early modern publishers uh, paid attention to it, but nobody else did. You know, the, 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 the idea of copyright is hazy. It is interesting that for this particular book, of course, for Stasis's book, copyright is actually being uh, being um, uh, being petitioned for and being requested, and and, and is actually being being granted as yeah, well. But the copyright was only, by the way, for the province of Holland, and only for 15 years. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Because that's about all the authorities were interested in even enforcing it, yeah. because they were. We're not certainly going to go after it, and there are pirated versions fairly early on as well. Immediately, yeah, yeah. so in German and in 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 French, it seems rather than the original Dutch. But yeah. in any event, uh, no, I, I think it's 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 very different. People are not particularly. Uh, concerned about plagiarism. No, uh, no clearly not at no, that time. Yeah. Well, um, Case, we've taken up really a lot of your time, and, and I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy. Um, let, me, um, let me thank you for being on the show, and let me close with our traditional final question, and that is, uh, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Um, there's a variety of things, and, and as you said in our earlier conversation, uh, as an academic, you actually do have a variety of projects always on the go. Uh, I'm not quite sure where it all ends up. Uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to actually uh, edit the 
17th century Dutch text uh, into a 21st century Dutch text. And I have a publisher who is is interested in that, and mm-hmm. I've moved along quite nicely, actually, with that. So we'll see what, what comes out of that. Second thing is, I'm in conversation, but I'm not quite sure where that goes with the publisher, and I certainly am interested in it, yeah, about a translation, an integral t- translation of the course on Russian history by Vasily Kluczewski. Oh, really? Parts mm-hmm. of it have been published, but we need a lot more. And uh, and by the way, I'm looking for translators, Marshall. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, if you know of anyone, anyway. Okay. Uh, the, the third thing is is um, I'm planning, I told you about that uh, book which which uh, Strauss competed. Yeah, uh, the right. book uh, the, of the embassy. That particular text has only ever been published in in Dutch and then in Dutch and Russian. Oh, really? Huh. I either I'm planning to. I've already written a sort of introduction, but either I will actually translate or try to translate that book into English, and I hope, hope to find someone interested in it, mm-hmm. uh, or um, translate the actual account of the embassy, which have been transcribing out uh, of 17th century Dutch handwriting, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. I think the book, uh, in the end, is more interesting, perhaps, than the, the, the embassy's account, but I haven't made up quite my, 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 uh, my mind yet what to do with mm-hmm. that. Uh, but that would be the third uh, project, uh, uh, and, and that is, if, and then, finally, perhaps, further down the line, is I'm is this project that I might want to? Um, I, I, I'm interested, let's say, in in writing a biography of that ambassador, who mm-hmm. uh, his name is Kunrad von Klenk, and he actually he spoke Russian, uh, mm. and he must be unique in that sense yeah. as a Western European mm-hmm. for the 17th century. Yeah, he lived in Russia for a while, and so on, uh, and he's a very um, important figure in the relationship between Russia and um, and the Netherlands, and he's also a very important tycoon in uh, Amsterdam's business circles in the 17th century. He's mm-hmm. mayor of Amsterdam, or he's mayor, he's, 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 he's one of the, 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 the more important, let's say, city councils, all kind of other jobs he does. So he's one of the so-called regions of Amsterdam of the age. Mm-hmm. And I think to some degree, uh, on the one hand, it, it, it further investigates the fairly close relationship, I think, between the Dutch Republic and Muscovy before Peter the Great, at the same time, it also um, emphasizes to Dutch historians who, or the historians of the Dutch Republic, I should say, many of whom these days are located in the U.S. or in England, um, and write in English. But um, there is, I think, not enough of an awareness how important those ties actually were. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, even from the Amsterdam perspective, because people in the Russia trade are everywhere um, as the leading politicians of the city, Nicolaas Witzer, Kunat van Klenk, and so on and so forth. There's quite a few of them actually, if you look at it carefully. So there is something which perhaps could be further explored, um, but that is then f- very much further down the line, and that might be one of those projects, uh, to quote you, which I might take into the grave. Yeah, no, you are, you're, you've, you've got it all mapped out for about 25 years now. So. Oh, I to mention one last thing, actually, Marcia. I'm the editor of The Historian as yes, well. that's right, that's right. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm busy say, with it. Yeah, go ahead and say a few words about The Historian. Um, uh, yeah, the historian is, uh, is, is, is a journal which is intended for a fairly broad audience of history buffs. People, anyone who is interested in history has studied some history at the uni- uh, at university level, perhaps. Uh, and we publish anything on any aspect of history, frankly. Um, so um, anyone who is interested in reading exciting articles, which I hope they are, exciting articles about uh, any aspect of history, we always have a good amount of American history, but we also have a lot of non-American history, mm-hmm. should perhaps take a look at this journal in one form or other. Obviously, there 
they're, they're available in databases, but you can also take out a subscription. The journal is actually published since 1938, and uh, it is published under the auspices of um, Phi Alpha Theta, which is the National Honor Society, by the mm-hmm. way, as well. Yeah. Uh, but in any event, anyone who, uh, who is interested should have a good look at it. There's also a ton of book reviews, so it gives you a very nice overview of what has recently been done by historians in case you are looking for some kind of birthday present, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. All right, so that is the historian, and anyone can find us easily on the web, just under the historian. Um, everything about the journal will immediately appear if you and Google I should, it. I should also say that um, for the professional historians who listen to this podcast, and I know there are many of them, um, that uh, you, you, it's also encouraged that you submit something. Yeah, you absolutely are encouraged to submit something. Uh, anyone out there who is interested and has something for which they cannot find a venue, and that is sometimes uh, uh, difficult to do, particularly if you have an article which uh, which uh, doesn't really fall under any kind of heading, mm-hmm. uh, d- that perhaps uh, the historians might be a very good venue for you. Also, sometimes people want to branch out a little bit, get away from the very specific kind exactly. of journal which only read by the specialists in the field. Uh, the historian, again, is, is, is probably a very good venue, um, and and uh, we try to take care of things rather quickly as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, until Since I've taken over last summer, we are able to turn around things, um, if they're accepted, etc., within the year easily. That's so, good. That's um, very good. So that in that sense, uh, also, if you're hard-pressed to get something published, it might be an idea. Okay. Well, um, Case Butterbloom, thank you very much for being on the show. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Marshall. Okay, uh, take enjoy care. Enjoy being there. All right, bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Case Butterbloom, about his new book, The Fiction and Reality of Jan Strauss, a 17th century Dutch globetrotter. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.